In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Today's sermon text is Matthew 22, 37 and 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Today I want to specifically focus our attention on the word love. The love that we are to have both for God and for neighbor. You see, we make a major mistake when we underestimate the importance of knowing the biblical definition of love. Our little part of the world is no stranger to the love confusion that fills our land and the hearts of so many of our neighbors. The motto of the LGBTQ is by now known to most all, love is love. The expression is ultimately meaningless, although it makes a nice bumper sticker because it uses the word to define the word. Our Savior Lutheran Church posted a sign saying, love is always the answer. But what do they mean by that? Love is always the answer. The love of parents to protect their children from being pressured to harm their bodies or corrupt their souls with worldly doctrines, is that what they mean? That love is always the answer. The love of a friend to take up arms and be willing to kill evildoers who threaten the lives of neighbors and even strangers they never met. Is that the love that is the answer? Or do they mean the sexual love of lovers? Is that the love that is always the answer? Many of you know we as a church and I as your pastor are sometimes, maybe all the time in the case of the latter, described as unloving. Let me assure you, nothing could be further from the truth. Everything we do at St. Mark is in keeping with God's commandment to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. As a church in a town and county and state that publicly accepts and aggressively promotes evil with neighbors who are encouraged to live as the world lives for pleasure's sake, we, yes, from what I can see, we alone in Ferndale are exemplifying true love for God and for our neighbors. And I make no hesitation in saying that. I'll gladly explain why and do it with confidence. Here's the explanation. And this explanation will teach you, lest you forget, the love God has for you and the love he gives you to have for your neighbor. Here's the explanation. Don't fall asleep on me. In his classic work, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis defines the four Greek words we generally translate into love in our English Bibles. Storhe, filio, eros, and agape. All four of those words are translated into the one four-letter word in your Bible, love. Really clear, right? Four different words with four different meanings, and all could be translated for you the same way you talk about your favorite baked dish. I love it. Storhe is affection. Parents have affection for their children. We say... Parents love their children. Filio is friendship or brotherhood. Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. And the word is in the, in the title of the city. Friendship, camaraderie, 
a companionship. Eros is the love husbands have for their wives and vice versa. It is the intimate sexual love that is so easily hijacked by our culture and turned into lust. These three are familiar loves to all fallen mankind, naturally. They are our native tongue. We can do them. We can exercise these loves to one degree or another without God. But not the fourth love. This one is God's love for us. This is divine love, agape. Lewis calls it charity in his book. We might also be inclined to offer the word grace as a synonym. This is the word in Jesus' two great commandments, which we also heard in the Hebrew Deuteronomy reading. Love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Agape. Not affection. Not friendship. And certainly not eros. Agape. With affection, friendship, and intimate love, the lover is moved to love by something lovable in the beloved. Now, I didn't have time to print out a sermon notes page like normal. So if you want to take a note, there's two things I want you to really draw from this on your definition of love that will help you. And this is the first part. With the first three loves, affection, friendship, and eros, the love that the lover is moved to love toward the beloved is because the beloved is lovable. There's something lovable in Jessica that made me want to marry her. There's something lovable in Myron that makes him a brother. There's something lovable about Bethany, as she's my child. All three, there's, there's something lovable in the object of my love for them, in my affection, in my friendship, and in my arrows. Parents have storhe, affection for their kids, because they're adorable at first. <laughs> they have their eyes, after all, etc. They're their own children. You're friends with someone because you share something in common with them, something from your past, perhaps, or a certain uh, interest. Or you appreciate something about their personality, about who he or she is as a person. You like him, and so you, the filio love is in play. A man asks a woman to marry him because he identifies something good, true, and or beautiful within her. And their relationship, while it includes affection and liking each other, it is defined vocationally by eros. For that is the only place where this love is shared. But with agape love, and here's the other thing to write down. With agape love, the lover loves the beloved even though there is nothing lovable within them. Contrary to being lovable. This is the love of enemy. It's not cute puppy love. It's not love for your BFF. It's certainly not love for your spouse. It's love of enemy. And so you see already why I'm confident to say that in Ferndale, we alone can say we are loving God and our neighbor with agape love. We're not called to be affectionate or friendly toward our neighbors. Not at all. That's a misconception. That would be storhe or filio love in the Bible. But the word we see there in the Greek is agape. But, but storhe and filio love are our natural responses. When we see love, these are the two frameworks we start to work with because these are the ones we understand. 
subconsciously. It's our natural point of reference for anything that has to do with love. Love of neighbor. To be affectionate and kind toward them. To like them. So we assume these definitions when we read the word love in the New Testament. It's misconception. God is calling us to do something far greater than affection or likeness toward our neighbor. Those things are great. But God is calling us to do something even better than that. He's calling us to love them with the divine love that God showed us while we were still sinners, when there was not a single thing lovable within us, while we were disgusting, despicable, horribly ruined and tainted, dead carcasses. And Jesus said, I love them. I will go die for them. With no merit or worthiness within us, they are mine. Jesus is the guy who lets everybody else have the good things and he takes the junk, sees how worthless it is. He doesn't even see anything of value in it. It is his love for the junk that makes it lovable. I have nothing within myself that makes me lovable. Only Christ. Christ makes me lovable. And so Jesus was crucified for you while you were unlovable. Completely hostile toward God. His enemy. Hating God. And since he loved you like this, his spirit then endows you with the ability to love him back and then to love your neighbor. This is why in Isaiah 53, verse 2, we read that Jesus, it's prophetic about Christ, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Now again, I'm going to point out I love having our Christus Rex here, but it does make preaching the cross a little difficult when you look at a gold-clad kingly corpse instead of the dead guy with wounds on his body, right? When it's hard to look at a crucifix, to see blood pouring off of him, to see the, the crown of thorns and the injury he suffered, to see the pierced hands, to see the puncture of his side, to see him lifeless and dead and gray, and yet to say, I love that. Because that's a picture of the death penalty. Who would say that's beautiful? Who would say that's good? That's why you're confused every Good Friday. You're like, what is good about this day? Nothing apart from Christ and God's love for us. And then everything, because it is a picture of that love for us. And so only in the love of God can we look at the cross and see something good, true, and beautiful. And then love God back. We needed God to love us in order for us to love him back and in order for us to appreciate the cross of Christ and then love our neighbors with that love. Jesus loves you. And truth be told, it's Jesus who loves your neighbor through you, not you who love them. Love for the unlovable sinner who has nothing redeemable about him is the love that St. John writes so much about in his first epistle. It's full of the word love, and every single instance of it is agape. There's not a single storhe filio or eros in all of it. It's all agape. Anyone who does not love agape does not know God, because God is love, agape. God is charity. 
God is grace. God is forgiveness. God is love. Agape. As Lewis put it, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he might love and perfect them. He creates the universe already seeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back of Christ Jesus pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as his body drops and droops, and the repeated torture of his back and his arms time after time for breath's sake as he hitches himself up. Take note of the nature of this love in Lewis's depiction of the cross. It's over and against affection and friendship and eros. God knew we would kill Jesus with our sins before he even created anything. Foreseeing everything, he knew how we would treat his son. And yet he still created you, killer of Christ. And then he sent Jesus to redeem you from that state of being. He still loved you and he loves you. That's why we can't agape. We can't do that. Only God can do that. With his most precious son's death fully in his view, he still loved and loves each and every one of you. This agape love is the love he still has for you, even though after your baptism you continue to sin. He still sees there's nothing apart from him redeemable about you or lovable about you, and yet he still continues to love you. This is the love the two great commandments call us to have for God first and for neighbor with it. It's the one kind of love that we don't possess naturally, and it's the one kind of love we need to give to God. It's what we're called to do in the commandment. And there is the overarching, abundant grace of the gospel because he gives us the very thing we're called to do by the law. He says, Jonas, you must love me if you want to go to heaven. Oh, you can't. Here, let me love me for you. Praise be to God. As 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. This agape love is the love that enabled Jesus to say from the cross while dying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. And, to, and then to die to secure that forgiveness for you. This is the love that Stephen exemplified, the first martyr, when while being stoned to death said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is agape in action. Stephen wasn't taking his enemies to coffee and sharing a fist bump and a bro hug. He didn't have any affection toward them at all. He was being stoned to death by them. But he agaped them. In 1943, the Lutheran theologian R.C.H. Linsky wrote that agape love is altogether higher than the love of mere affection and liking. This latter kind of love would be impossible, he says, in the case of an enemy. He would not accept our affection and would more than likely strike us if we tried to embrace him. Nor would he be able to, we, we be able to like our enemies, even as we nowhere read, we nowhere read in the Bible 
that Jesus liked the wicked Jews. It doesn't say he had a brotherly affection for them, but he loved them. He died for them. Lenski continues, agape denotes the love of intelligence, comprehension, and corresponding purpose. Want a definition of love? Comprehension and corresponding purpose. You know what God's word says, and therefore you act accordingly. Intelligence, comprehension, and corresponding purpose. It indeed sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy, feels its stabs and its blows, may even have something to do to try to ward it off. But all this fills the loving heart with the one desire and aim to free the enemy from his hatred toward you, which is hatred toward Christ. To rescue him, even while he attacks you, from his sin, and this to save his soul from eternal damnation. This is the kind of love we are called to have for our neighbor. Jesus loved you when you were unable to love and rescue, love yourself, and he rescued you from your sin to save your soul. He filled you with his agape love. And so we are now able to love our neighbors as we love him. Do we do it perfectly? No but we're able to do it, to start to do it, to carry it out to some degree. We're able to hate those who, (laughs) to to love those who hate us because the love we have for God and the love he has for us. Martin Luther gets to the heart of this agape love when he says, there is no greater love than to intercede before God for bloodthirsty enemies. This is why it's so important that you understand the love you've been given for your neighbor, real-life neighbor in town, in this county, in this state, wherever your neighbors are that are at odds with you over Christ. You're not called to be affectionate toward them. You're not called to be friends with them. You're certainly not called to engage in eros with them. It'd be interesting if a single guy and a single girl... Hated each other and then got married. You're not called for that. You're called to love them with the truth of God's word. We call that mercy, grace, forgiveness. It's seeking after their salvation when they've done nothing to deserve it just as you did nothing to deserve the salvation you've received from Christ, but have been rescued from your sin by pure grace, the grace of the cross. God wants you to love those who hate you, to work for their eternal salvation. Smiling and nodding, waving, being congenial with one another. If you know they are an unbeliever, That's actually a horrible, hate-filled thing to do. Because you've agreed to disagree, and you know they're on the road to hell. They have rejected Jesus. You know that their actions are not aimed at you, but are aimed at the Lord, who's trying to stop them from doing the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, instead of receiving the works of the Spirit. That's a horrible place for us to be in. Anyone who advocates for just being friendly with the neighbor is advocating wrongly. Maybe 
well-intendedly, but wrongly. I would rather them know the truth and hate my guts and continue to know the truth and continue to hate my guts until the day they either kill me, drive me out of town, or finally shut me up. Same for you. That's a hypothetical, not just not me. I'm, I'm talking about for us. Like, put yourself in my position. You should have that view too. Luther continues, the Christian love that we are called to have cannot hold its tongue nor bear to see its neighbor err and sin. It must rebuke and improve wherever it can. This is the thing that drives us to speak the truth even though we know it's going to be unpopular. The Christian cannot hold his tongue. He must say something to his, his neighbor out of love. Do not keep going. Put on the parachute before you jump out of the plane. Get off the train tracks before it hits you. Quit running for the cliff. Don't jump off. All those sorts of things. Get out of the pot. You're boiling to death. This, the good Reverend Luther says, is how and why rebuking is actually evidence of love. Engaging in the fight of faith is evidence of love. Therefore, the anger, Luther says, and the censure which arises from such Christian love are very different from the anger, hatred, and vengefulness of the world. We can be angry at the sins we see, and that is not the same anger as the world has in retaliation to God's word. He says, the world seeks its own interest and will not put up with anything said or done against its pleasure-seeking. But love, true agape love, is angered only in the interest of neighbor. And though it is not silent in the presence of evil and does not approve evil, it is able to suffer and bear, he says, to forgive and to cover all that may be committed against it. It leaves nothing untried that may contribute to the reformation of its neighbor. This is Christ's love for you. He left nothing untried to reform you from your sinfulness. He loved you literally when no one else would or could, when there was nothing lovable within you, while you were still a sinner, an enemy of God, he loved you and he lived for you and he died for you and he was resurrected for you. He showed you charity. He showed you grace. He showed you mercy and forgiveness. He loved and loves you. Agape. Amen. amen. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.